Hello, dear listener, and welcome back to Driving to Pretoria with me, Nick Rabinowitz. You know, I once drove to Pretoria for a full three months every week, probably three times a week, to visit a young lady in Pretoria named Debbie Becker. I might have mentioned this on the podcast before, but I always like to hanker back to those days of trying to get leg over in Pretoria, as my friend Roy van Rensburg used to call it. Why are you driving to Pretoria, Nick? Is it to get leg over? I like to think that's where this show was inspired, but, well, maybe it was, unconsciously, who knows. My guest on this week's episode of Driving to Pretoria is somebody who's never lived in Pretoria, I don't think. I met him at the Westerwood High School many, many, many years ago, where he was a prefect and bustling opening bowler for the second team. And the life and soul of Westerford's art and culture, let's be honest, him and his comedy duo partner, I believe, was Greg Hutchison. Hutchison, his father, Mr. Hutchison, was the principal at the Grove Primary School and had the longest comb-over I'd ever seen in my life, just as a side note. <laughs> anyway, Alan Committee has become a legend in South African comedy and theatre and occasionally dance circles. Uh, he is arguably the most successful theatre comedian in the country. You may know him as the star of Rob Becker's Defending the Caveman. Rob Becker, of course, no relation to Debbie Becker that we know of. <laughs> or you may remember his great character, Johan van der Valt. And um, you also might remember him as the Truck Drivers Association comedian at the Cape Truck Drivers 1999 end of year party if you are a truck driver which I think is highly unlikely anyway please enjoy this conversation with my dear friend and prolific stand-up comic character comedian actor comedy writer theater director MC qualified high school teacher and former once-off captain of the Westford High School second 11 cricket team I present to you Alan Committee Hello, everybody. Welcome to this podcast without a name yet in the committee. I'm hoping that by the end of this, you will have a name for the podcast. And I didn't include that in the brief. But it's wonderful to have um, my friend and comedian, Alan Committee, um, also graduate of Westerford High School, Nil Nisi Optimum, Nothing represented the Westerford High School in the game. of. I don't think we ever played cricket together. Um, Did we? I think we had one... Two games. I kind of feel like we did, but maybe that's something I've just been telling people, and maybe that isn't true. I think it's quite possible, but I think that I started playing first team cricket in 1992. Right. And you were in matric that year. No, 91. Was, no, I finished in 91. You finished in 91. So we never, so we played never did. I know that I was uh, captain for a short while of the second eleven, and Adam West, who we both know, yes, was in the second eleven side. And at that point, I suspect you were kind of. Under 15. Under 15A. Right. No, no, just no, no, tell the people under 15A. Uh, under 15A, right. Now also tell them there was no B side. There wasn't, no. <laughs> there wasn't, but that wasn't uh, any reflection on how good you were because you were, and people spoke of you. Did they? Oh, yes, in hello tones. Sure. They said, oh, there's a little leggy there. Serious, because we probably need to share with the listener. Yes. <laughs> that, um, <laughs> that you, I was, if, if you'd asked me in my matric year, that little snotty lad there, who's what two years younger than me, or a year three, younger? Uh, three, no. three, two years. I'm forty-seven. 
44. 44. So three years younger than me. That little lad. Give me, here's a, give me a million things he might be one day. I would have listed a million things. Not one of it would have been stand-up comedian. You didn't have that. No. That's not how you were at school. You know, some guy, I, I liked, I, was in all, I certainly liked to perform. I was in all the school productions and, um, and I liked making friends laugh. You were not that guy at school. No. To the point that when you phoned me years later, and by then we obviously, we had connected up and we met and you, were, you had started doing some work for Nick Ellenbogen at the Olympia Bakery, if I remember, at his theater space there, not the bakery, it was a little theater. And you phoned me and you said, hey, I'm thinking of doing one like a like a comedy show yeah. like just 15 minutes of comedy and i remember having to i don't know if i had a cell phone at that point but if i did i held it away and just thought to myself this is going to be an awkward conversation what do i say to this lad i mean i don't want to discourage nobody but this can't go well i said well listen you know if you want me to share some stuff we can help i think i put you in touch with chris weir as well or maybe that was later with a goat show i can't remember but but i just remember thinking why would you want to do you've yes you, and then here, here we are. Do you know what I like in that too is, is for many years we would go for Friday night supper with uh, some friends of ours. And they had, or she had a brother who lived at Camp Hill who was... Um, differently abled? <laughs> you sure? Yeah. Not what we called it back then. But no. this guy, I forget his name, but he would sit around the Friday night uh, Shabbos table <laughs> and he would literally not say a word for the entire night. Like we thought he was mute. And uh, and then a couple of years later, I went to Camp Hill in Hermanus or somewhere, right. somewhere, somewhere uh, to visit somebody. And and this guy, it turns out, he was like the life and soul of the differently abled party. Wow. Yeah. So he felt comfortable there and he could. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so at school, I could never do right, anything. That wasn't But I would fine, take yeah. my friends uh, up the mountain at Eagle's Nest. Right. And get high. And then I would regurgitate these uh, these stories from my godfather, who was like a spice and placid type of right, kind of shaggy dog, long yeah. story. Yeah. And then was like, Tell me about nearly being arrested in the, was it level five of the pandemic? Yes, so that was early in the pandemic. It was it was in that second. That month. was your that was, and this was the time where we were toying with this. Do we do these online yes. shows? Yes. So you and Rob were out of the out of the starting blocks uh, almost immediately. And remember, you, yeah. you were doing, and it was, it put a lot of pressure. I kind of think, wow, and, and you were getting such lovely responses and people. What was interesting was to see people's need to have connection and uh, A, be entertained, but B, just to see familiar faces. Uh, and, you know, I suppose we become familiar faces. Them. So you'd see people commenting, Nick, thanks, man. Well, Rob, this is brilliant. My hesitation around it was that uh, my shows are so uh, intertwined with audience interaction. I mean, obviously I have my material and that's fine, but in between that, I kind of stitch mm. the interaction with the audience into the show. And I knew immediately I wouldn't be able to do that because when people write comments, as you were doing at one point, you were kind of commenting on comments and, and that was great. But I, that's just not what I was kind of... That wasn't great. That was my thing. Well, no, well, I mean, it was great, but it, it nice. was fine for what it was. Yeah. yeah. And then this is what we learned. We all learned this quickly is that... There was a, an initial response of him, this is fantastic. And then people going, I mean, it's kind of fantastic, but it's not the real thing. And then finally, oh, if I see another person on a screen, you yeah. know, I'm going to smash something. Uh, and some people did. Uh, but in that gap, I thought, well, maybe I could take it to the next level because Aki from Penny Lane Studios had said to me, well, listen, why don't we, you can come to my studio. This was when we had a nine o'clock curfew 
And so it was still level five, but they had just allowed, and it was six to nine, I think, exercise in the morning. And we said, okay, we'll come to the studio, which is home studio. So I thought, well, that might be improved because it's not just the couple of things we had done was we were on laptops and you were kind of constricted by sound and, and you know, the camera on your laptop. But now we'd have two cameras. We'd have his studio. He's for, uh, famous for Eastern Acoustics, which is a brilliant sound company. who have done many theater productions. I thought this will be good. So we set it up and, and I put out a, a newsletter and, and suddenly, the, because there was nothing else on, Cape Talk picked it up and um, Expresso picked it up and suddenly we were, it was like a full-on show. At seven o'clock we went live and we started seeing people already gathering an hour before the show. Mm-hmm. And then as we went live, now I'm in the studio and we've got one, we've got one cameraman who's operating both cameras, the rest of the crew are sitting in another room. And I start the show and after three minutes, someone comes running in and said, it's it's not, people are now commenting, they can't see anything. And it started, the first 30 seconds started and nothing. So I was like, okay, cool, let's, we start again. And they rebooted the system and we did it and I started the second time. And then they stopped me again. Now I'm just, I'm starting to feel, and just the comments. I stopped, I read about, for about two minutes, I started reading comments. And the, the interesting thing is how people, listen, the expectation was high. People had sat down, they got a bottle of wine, they bought some food, they might have phoned friends in another country and said, let's all watch together. So there was a thing. But it was also 60 Rand, and yeah. but that falls away. So there was lots of lovely comments from people who've supported me over the years, friends, family, and fans, and then some, yeah, some people jumping aboard. And I quickly just thought, okay, if I'm going to read this, there's going to be tears before bedtime. The fourth time I started, no one stopped me. Clearly, they're just recording this but they yes. don't want to stop me. So I just did it. I did the full hour. And as I finished, they said, cool, we're now going to upload it and send it out. And what had happened was Stix Galloway, who we both know, used to be the CEO of the Fugard, which is just closed. He was a great friend of mine and he saw it from his home and he was watching and he just, no one was making this as the decision in that other room. So he called him after the third time. He said, guys, just let him shoot, send out a message right now and tell everyone we're uploading the link and just stop this panic from it because at the moment, everyone's yeah. getting upset which was a great call. And in the end, it worked out fine because we then sent out the link within an hour of everyone, all 6,000 people had got the link. So the comments from that night were appalling. I mean, the majority of them, but equally, I had so much lovely feedback over the next four or five days. Um, But it was just unbelievably harrowing. I mean, you just, the the stress of that, and you know, there was a little bit of, you you talk about post-traumatic stress. I mean, there was, it knocked my confidence radically for for a month or two. The third one, or the second big online show I did, I did a hybrid, a small audience, and that was a treat. Same studio, Penny Lane. Oh, by the way, the problem with it was there was uh, AfriHost were doing some work on a line. It just happened to be coincidental. They couldn't have fixed it. What they learned is that they needed to have three or four different. Yeah. And I think all the big companies now know that. So it was a, there was a. But we were all learning. This, there was what was the original question was. Oh, so that. so the end of that night, you... you oh, yes, you, so, uh... that's right. So this is the thing. So you think your night can't get worse. I am... We've now sent out... It's now 10 to 11. Uh, curfew's come and gone a long time ago. That's a 9 o'clock curfew. The, the plan, by the way, was for me to sleep. Aki's house is right opposite his studio, and he's got a guest suite. He said, well, listen, there's no rush. You can sleep there tonight. And then, so I said, that's perfect. But after the harrowing events and just feeling so stressed... And I'm just exhausted now and comments are still coming through and people phoning and what the, and how did this happen? And I, I mean, I had people going, I have never, never been so angry at so. And I was like, your life is tremendous. If this is the most angry thing that I, I couldn't understand it. 
other than expectations were high. So I was upset and Aki said, well, should we, you don't want to come across the road? And I said, you know what, stuff it. I'm just going to go home. I need to get home. I was in Weinberg. I stay in Takai. I just, just go. So he said, okay, good luck. So I got in my car and I tapped it through the back streets through Weinberg, passed a couple of police. The roads were empty. This was early days of lockdown when everyone was just fantastically obedient. Through the back past um, uh, um, the gym in Constantia and, and I'm just coming up to my house. I, I live off Jakai Road and I see the circle and there's, for the first time on the trip of 10, 12 minutes, there's two lights in front of me. It's a car going away from me. Now, I should have just turned down the side road, but I'm thinking, well, that car's also trying to get home. It's in front of me and we're keeping the same distance. And then they stop at the circle. And as I come up, I see there's another car in front of them and they're both squad cars. They're both police cars. And now I stop. I'm about 20 meters away. So we both stop. Then they turn slowly into uh, Cairo. And I get to the circle and I look and now they're just waiting. <laughs> it's just this moment of, and then I go past them and I turn right into my road and immediately, wah, wah, both cars, eight cops circle my car within like four seconds. At this point, I'm just like, uh, oh. so he said to me, uh, good evening. I said, hello, how are you? <laughs> he goes, everything right? I said, yes. I said, I thought my mother had a panic attack. And uh, she, I just went to go and take her some comments and, you know, rescue remedy, whatever I could. She's much better now. I said, but this is my house. If you'll allow me. And I opened my garage. I said, I'm literally 20 meters away from my house. He goes, so you're a doctor? I said, no, I'm not a doctor. He said, but you're a medical practitioner that you know how to. I said, no, officer, of course I'm not. I understand that. But, you know, an elderly lady, you want to look after her. He goes, okay, checks my license, checks all the things. They literally stand there for about a minute looking at me, just intimidating. And then he says, that's fine. Thank you. I'm just like, thank you. As I drive into my house, I think this man's actually been very sweet because here I am saying I've got to my mother. I'm still in my suit with a pocket handkerchief. <laughs> Imagine your mother phoning saying, I'm having a panic attack. Hold on, I'm going to get dressed up. I don't want to just come around in my pajamas. It's going to put in a hilarious. I park my car, the garage closed. I get out. I'm, a, I'm really, as the kids say, I'm shook. And I get out, and as I'm walking into the kitchen, I hear the cop, they start up, woo, and they're actually chasing somebody else. But I think they've changed their minds, that they're now going to raid my house. At that point, hi! <laughs> Imagine if I had been arrested on the night oh. of an awful comedy performance. This must be the nightmare of comedians. I told my friend Greg uh, the story, and he said, no, they were the comedy police. They knew how crap you yes. were that night, and yes. they'd come to arrest you. He wasn't wrong. How is your mom? My mom's good. Does she's, she come and watch? Does she? Yes, she yeah. watches. Yeah, she's not a. She's not a. She's not that mom who'll watch four or five times in a run. She only watches once. She does bring a big group of friends. So the night that she arrives, she'll often have anything from ten to twenty people. Uh, so she gets all the old family, friends, and what have you. She's uh, as any good mother should be completely undiscerning as to whether the show is really good or not. She just supports it. So if it's a terrible night and it all goes terribly wrong, I'm still the best in the world. And which is you would fun. expect that from a Jewish mother. But is this not your no. no critical? Well, you know the other problem is that no. I just got a text from Jenny Rabinovitz now. What time at Cafe Rue tomorrow? Oh, you're doing a show tomorrow. Night. I'm doing a show tomorrow, but I was planning on you know workshopping some new. Your mother shouldn't stuff, be there, you know. Yeah. And, and one thing in particular relates to her. So now, oh, you know, that becomes a problem because you, you, you yeah. don't, I don't, I've never heard you yeah. tell stories about your mother. No. But, um, and this is, it's one of the things that, I mean, I know Robin, you share that skill and I call it a skill in that 
you talk about personal stuff and yet somehow you make them routines. I mean, they, so I never know. I always assume that there's a level of comedy license and how much you, but maybe not. Some of the things maybe. Well, sometimes fat. it's not. Like, for example, um, I've got this bit about my dad being captured in North Africa or nearly being captured, <laughs> but escaping uh, Tobruk because he had sandfly fever and a skin problem called seborrheodermatitis, which he called crotch trouble. Now, when she came to see that show, yeah. she said, do you really have to talk about dad's private skin problems in public? And there it is. And did you get laughs for that story, by the way? Yeah. Or there for example, answer, the time yes. in Matrick, I went to live with my gran because my mum uh, had a nervous breakdown. And did you tell the audience? I said that. I said, she actually just went to Joburg for a nose job, but we were too embarrassed to tell. And she's like, how can you? That's funny. Shit. But that's, that's what happened, right? So, so that's so that's the difference between you. Like you guys do that. I don't. I mean, I take stories, both stories from my own life, and friends will tell me stuff, and I always say to them, oh, "That's such a great, that's such a funny idea or funny thing that's happened to you. Do you mind if I?" And yeah, they're not sure. And then you make it your own. Um, but I always tell them as if they just a little bit. There's a persona that I've created. The Allen Committee on Stage is not necessarily as yeah. close, maybe as the Nick. I'm not saying they're the same because I don't think they are. But the the Nick Rubinovitz on stage is. There's a lot of overlap. In the Venn diagram of your life, there's a lot of overlap. I think there's less for me between my stage persona and me, uh, certainly in terms of the content, if that makes sense. What I do, you know, I've been reviewing a lot of old material of, of mine, which I really, a lot of it, just cringe. When but that's I, true when of I, all of us. It, it is, but in terms of race and cultural right. appropriation and these things, which I think you have avoided, yeah. you have avoided, uh, so that... Uh, so that you know, one can't trawl through your own material and go, how insensitive was... Right. Um, which is something that... But, that but I, your subject matter was a lot... I mean, it was politically... I mean, I think yeah. anything we talk about in this country is politically laced. Sure. But your one was very much satirizing or spoofing or reflecting on political stuff. And so it has to have a shelf life. Yeah. It, it, you know, what was true... I mean, what's that great thing? is Jimmy Carl who says, the joke that's going to end my career is already... Being performed it's, yes. it's just 10 you know it's, someone has to find it 10 years ago and then yeah. in 20 years in yeah, fact yeah. i might even write it today and in 10 years time that's the thing that people go you you cancelled and we're living with that all the time and how much so you can only give it as long as i believe as long as you're interrogating and sensitive in your time frame right now with the information you have right now who how can you control that how things mm. will be perceived in years so i mean I, yeah i remember you doing Pretty bold and kind of, you know, I don't know. I don't you know how you came across on this uh, interesting looking hard drive here. It feels like it's not finished. It feels like what's happened there? Well, is that the idea that it's sexy and I, kind of? I don't of... know. No, no, it's, it's sort of a deconstructed hard drive. But I came across some a character that I did, um, which I was I was quite mortified to see <laughs> yeah. that that this particular character was like almost a, a carbon copy of your your Hunt van der Velt, um character. Wow. And because I was talking to somebody recently, another comedian about she was very upset someone stole a character from her. Um, I was looking back, but I was looking back and then I'm sure that, that if, if I was you and I'd seen that. What did, who was you? What well, was it called? Well, it was called the Kalchat Kok. Um, I don't know. Yanni Ulufia. 
Oh, I remember you doing something like. But he that. had like teeth, and he had like that thing of you right. know, speaking English, Same saying words mm. in English. That term. you know, there's been a lot of those kinds of characters. I mean, I can hardly claim that Johann von der Volt was, you know, the idea of of bad translations that has been around for years. Yeah. So it's how you. For me, what I loved about Johann is that he was an Afrikaans character in a safari suit, who wasn't racist or. Um, conservative. Yes. Uh, in my mind, always, I never ever shared it as the character, but he's gay, he just doesn't know it. Because his favorite movie, and he talks about it, <laughs> my favorite movie are Brokeback Mountain. I love that film. But because he loves cowboys and farming, in his head. Yeah. But he keeps, and so, in my mind, he's a gay man who doesn't know he's come out of the closet. And he's completely, he doesn't ever talk about race or race issues or um, identity around Afrikaans or whatever. So, that's what I thought was quite interesting. It, it, that was, he had yeah. a look and a, and you meet him going, oh, safari suit, Afrikaans. Uh, but, and the other thing I described him is the Basil Fawlty of Da'ar. <laughs> so he was, he, his whole thing was being officious. Yes. And about, for me, it came from working with those people. There were some staff members I worked with like that. But any job that you encounter, there's always those people who, who take the power that they've been given, whether it's um, you must photocopy these pages and just make sure no yep. one photocopies more than 20 copies. And then that you becomes... The, those hands. Give me yes. that temperature. Correct. Wear that thing. And then that becomes their empire. Yep. And you are under their rule. And they will... And that kind of... That's funny for me because that... What are you doing? What? How is this... You know, if it was packed and we were slowing down a queue and then I'd get it. But that officiousness is funny to me. So for me, Johan van der Volt was... It was really about the, the language stuff was a side thing and obviously allowed me to get some, if you will, easy laughs. But really it was about an attitude. Who was this man? I used to call, he's a part-time uh, security guard, but a full-time, like he, in his head, he was like a John Mathan. He had knowledge of all things and he could talk about all things, but of course he couldn't. And that was funny to me. And what was, you know, what was amazing being a younger comic was you know, being inspired by what you were doing at that time. Who was that for you? Who were those? Yeah, there were a number. I mean, the obvious one, and I, I say this all the time, and people say, oh, but he really was a, such a huge influence was Mark Banks. Because Mark, for me, uh, was a theatre comic. Uh, I didn't have, I mean, these days, if you're starting a comedy career, there's so, well, maybe this is not a good time now, but let's say over the last three or four years, there's, you know, there's quite a rich club circuit or... Um, uh, a circuit of small independent clubs where you can go and test your material and start with five minutes, three minutes and work up. Mark Lotching and I started in the same month. We didn't know each other. Diddy Moses, I remember I was great friends with her, the choreographer. She said, there's a guy who's so funny you should meet. And she's told him that. And we never met for the next two years, but we knew of each other. And we started at the same time and we both had the same experience in that we didn't have clubs to go mm. to. There was no such circuit. So we both just went into theatre. He started at the Baxter under David Kramer. I jumped onto Theatre in the Bay initially with no director and then with Chris Weir after the second show. And he's kind of directed all my shows since, uh, 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 stand-up shows. And that idea of growing and learning with a theatre audience has meant that it's shaped in a different way because I had to A... At the time, unconsciously, but now I'm so grateful for, I had to work with an audience that was slightly more conservative and family orientated. So it meant that I didn't swear in a show. I mean, you know me well enough to know it's not that I don't swear in real life, uh, you know, but I don't swear in my shows because I could then get the grandchildren mm. and the grandparents coming to the show. That made financial sense to me. 
Um, and secondly, the content was such that it had to not just be a person at a mic talking, that it had some theatrical qualities. And as someone who studied as an actor, I kind of thought, well, how can lighting and sound and sketches and characters and music and an interval and building a rhythm to a big first half and then starting again small and getting an even bigger second, those things intrigued me. And so, and the other thing is I never just, I went straight from naught material to two hours of material for a show. And every show, because Peter always demanded an interval, mm. he could make money off the bar, meant that I had to have 90 to 120 minutes of new material. And the younger comics go, where did you test it? And I said, I tested on that first night. That was just our thing. And Mark will tell you the same thing, Lottery. You know, we didn't go to test it at, nowadays, actually, I will test, like now yeah. I'll test. But, even, but I don't have to in the sense that, I mean, it's nice to do that. I think it's a luxury to do that. But back in the day, we just did it. We just went, those first three or four shows, which were previews before you opened to press, you just kind of learned and most of our work. If we did 60% of the work in rehearsal in terms of structuring and almost all the work happened on those four, first four or five nights where we'd sit for an hour and a half after the show, straight coming off stage, go and grab a coat, say hello to whoever was in the audience. And then I'd sit with him on the stage and, and he'd always let me go first. And we would share, that's how much we were on the same page right from the beginning. I'd go, that thing in the first half has to go to the second. Oh, that's right. Yes, I've got mm. that. And he ticked that off. I think that can cut. I'm going to do this one more night, but I can feel like I thought that, but that doesn't work. That bit can, it's only one minute. I think we've got six minutes, definitely. Tomorrow night, we must extend it. And then you quietly shape and play over the first three or four nights. And then once you set in, the other thing which I think has made it what is what differs from being a, a theatre comic to a, a club comic is that then you have to learn the skill of repeating a show. Because I would do all my years, I've any new show I've done, I've done a minimum of 30, but sometimes up to 120 performances mm. of a show. And tour at Cape Town, Joburg, then do the festivals, maybe go to some of the smaller cities. Um, so after 120 performances of material, you really work and understand, but become better as a comic. And so today you get a lot of the guys that just don't have those opportunities. They do a one-off night at Goliath's or, you know, Cape Town Comedy Club and go, lacquer. And then, then they get upset because they've now got to write new material. There's a skill in able to repeat material and, um, and in a performance because people are paying money and they've heard how good that worked. Yeah. So as much as I respect and love comedians who go out there and go, I'm just going to improvise for 20 minutes and talk about these three things which I thought about, I think there's great skill in that. And bravery and courage there's equally courage in going i'm going to do the same material and make it feel like it's coming out of my head for the first time right now um so and i think theater that theater background helped i think you know what's interesting is that a lot of people just don't see the work so yeah. they don't see what's what's happening what's happening and as as somebody who started with the circuit because by the time i got there you know the cape comedy collective was around there were clubs so I thought that's how, that's how it worked. Yeah. And then, you know, having seen what you guys were doing, I was like, oh, okay. So I could do a show in an ops cafe. I could do it right. in a theater. And that's when the growth really happened because, oh, how does this work? Oh, you get a director. I see directed by Chris Weir or directed by David Cromwell. And then that's when the huge growth spurt happened because I had an outside eye. Yeah. And somebody going, that's shit. Yeah. Don't do that. Yeah. Um, and then there's the, the actual work ethic and, and people will, like I think you probably have one of the best around what is like what, what is typically what, over, the, over time 
in terms of writing a show? Yeah. What has been the structure that you set up? Yourself? So, I mean, the interesting thing is because, and I, I, I love that people say this, and particularly peers, it's always gratifying to hear that. And someone said this to me again the other day, you know, you work harder than anyone and or you're one of the hardest working or you always, but, but you and I, and I, we've spoken about this kind of informally, but there's a skill to, and I learned it, I was a very high uh, achieving student at school. I was an A student and worked really hard, sometimes too hard. And I think when I left school, one of the things that I clicked into going into varsity was in order to get the difference between the amount of work you have to do to get a first and a second or a high second or whatever was so ridiculous. You had to do an extra hundred hours in my mind for me that I thought, no, a high second is fantastic and no one really cares out there. It doesn't say on your certificate, you know, you've got the, the qualification. So you learn to pace yourself. And I've used that throughout my life. When I work hard, I work unbelievably hard and I think quite cleverly in that I set these are the things I need to do and want to achieve, and but then I work at it. But I'm fundamentally quite lazy, as I think most of us are. So there are also many, many days where I don't do anything. But, but then there's a lot of stuff going on in here. And that's to the point you just made. Like you, the work is also, yes, the work's with your director on the stage and the thing. But there's a lot of time where we are, our minds are just receptive to what's going on around us in a different way to how other people's minds are receptive. I talk about us looking at things as, as comedians. We, we, um, we look at stuff from a different perspective. So I can, we all get pissed off because of the way the bank has treated us or the way our mother has spoken to us. We all have the same, frustrated, angry, sad, distraught. But then for us, 20, it's normally about 25 minutes to 35 minutes later, there's a moment, even when we're in that, I must think about this because this could be a bit, or I could change this. And, and then over time, we somehow find a step to the right or to the left. We look at it from a slightly different perspective and we start deconstructing it and reassembling it in a comic fashion. And that's how our minds always work. And so that work is happening constantly. We never stop that. It's why whether you're having sex with someone or being told that one of your parents is terribly ill or uh, in the middle of gardening or there's a tiny little thing going, that's funny. Mm -hmm. Or if that had happened, that would have been even funnier. And that's just something that I think makes us unique in, in terms of you know, funny boned people. What has been the, the kind of gig that, that you finished and wanted to get immediately into your car and drive to Pretoria? <laughs> they happen uh, uh, now. You have like a top three. Yeah, I do. And, and I'll say this as well, because uh, you and I are both cricket lovers. We started talking about this. Uh, cricket uh, famously, uh, you know, you can score 100 or 200 in a innings and be on top of the world. And there's almost every chance that you're going to go out for a duck in the next innings because, as they say, the game's a great leveller and it doesn't, you can't be bigger than the game. And I do think comedy is absolutely some... Every time I have a great set or a night that just things... I just know there's every chance it's going to be awful. And, and that's great because you it makes you parat and on your toes and kind of psyched for it. But um, corporates particularly, and I've got to say that I'd like to think I'm pretty good at those corporates because of the stuff that I learned in theatres. I'm clean and I can work to factory floor workers to you know heads of states and companies and and work closely to a brief and i don't see it as some of our comedy colleagues do as selling out or oh why must i do it there is no reason for you to do it the only reason is they're paying you a lot of money and under those conditions for that night you are an employee of 
Standard Bank or Investec or Edgar's or whoever's in high, Edgar's would never. But, um, and, and so then you just buy, if you buy into it, then it's actually worked quite nicely. But the problem with corporate gigs is that the definition of them is that no one wants to be there. They're all doing it because it's part of a job expectation. So they're not the audience you have come to know and love in comedy yeah. clubs and theatres. They just can't be. Even when you have a great corporate gig, it is purely by, uh, well, hopefully by some of your skill, but it's a bit of luck as well. So your first 10 or 15 minutes in any corporate environment is just trying to say to them, it's all right, we're all here, and we're going to make this as painless and as lovely as possible, and we're going to be out of here by 11 o'clock. Plus, you're going to get some alcohol, so it's going to be fine. Let's all just be nice to each other. And that's what you kind of so, but so all my worst kids have either. You know, I want to know what, what I want to know. Yeah, so tell me, tell me what's been one where. Um, uh, sure. Well, the the one I've shared almost too too much uh, because it was the worst one and one of my early ones. So it gave me a good warning. Was the one uh, after a year of doing this, and I'd hardly done any corporates. I'd done three corporates, and at that point I was young. I was twenty three, twenty two, twenty three. I was doing. I had about fifteen minutes of comedy. Uh, that I could do a stand-up because the rest was all in a theatre show. My first show ever was a show called uh, Clown Jewels. Well, it was One Man Richard III, so that wasn't even a stand-up show. My first kind of comedy show was Clown Jewels, where I paid tribute to physical comedians. I had fantastic sketches that you couldn't do on a corporate stage, uh, uh, certainly not in a kind of MC role. So I only had 15 minutes of patter and jokes that I was doing in that show. So I would do 15 minutes. And part of that, by the way, was how the pronunciation of Les Miserables, which had just arrived in our country. So it was quite niche. It wasn't for everyone. And then I did a Mr. Bean character, because Bean was big uh, late 90s. And I had my Johan van der Volt character in early development. I had this So I would welcome people at the beginning of the evening as van der Volt. I would uh, do Mr. Bean during the dinner as a clown act while people yeah. were eating and stealing and clown with him. And then I would do the 15 minutes before I introduced the MD. And that was my evening. That's what you paid for. I think I charged like 2,500 Rand, which was a lot of money. I was happy with that. I'd done three of these. And at one of these events, I'll never, it was at Seikobosi. It was a black tie event for a computer company called Unisys, I think. And one of the partners came to me, a, a, a spouse came to me and she said, this is fantastic what you're doing unbelievable I want you for my function I said this is great and uh, and in my head I thought well that's obviously for all the hierarchy isn't it it's the it's the MD was well, this the thing in a tent this was the thing I did in... one in Durban for truckers was oh. similar oh I'm sure it is because I found out well I mean I'll tell you the, the truncated version the truncated version of the story but the punchline of it was that Joe Parker had done the year before and they thought he was too family friendly <laughs> why would they come to me so here's the thing I got asked. We met for the briefing at uh, the strip club. At the bot no, not teasers. There was the other one, the cage one. There was one that, the, but it's gone now. It was yesterday. And we sat there and at the briefing, a lady gave me a lap dance while she was trying to, it was, it was rough. And then she said, but the reason we're here is because strippers are part of the entertainment for the truckers. I said, well, that's obvious. It was for seven, 500 truckers. 507 truckers, I'll never forget that. 507 truckers, only one was a woman, and we didn't know which one. No one worked out. I, I never, she was there, but we didn't know which one. And then the, the lady who booked me, and was in Milnerton in the Italian club in Donegal Road, which is this huge, massive hall, hall. And uh, the tables were trestle tables. Instead of flowers, they had bottles of clippies as the center arrangement. And I was on a 
trestle table at the same height as the tables in the center of the room and it was in the round which you'll know is just a disaster because you can't really have a performance space and i got up at the beginning and i started with my 50 the, the afternoon it was uh, december it was like the 12th of december 35 degrees friday hot these truckers arrived first of all i arrived in my johan van der Volt outfit to welcome them and i turned around at one point and a guy was in the same safari suit with the same teeth and I went, hello, and he went, good me, yo. And I just knew he didn't know that I was a character. He thought I was another trucker. And I knew that he didn't know. And I thought, yes, he's going to murder me. So I just said, thank you. And I ran it. So I changed as quickly as I could. Then I went out and did my 15 minutes. No one stopped talking. In the 15 minutes, they just, the lady who had booked me was talking in front of me. Well, and they didn't care. And I went off. Then she said, do the Mr. Bean. To 500 truckers. Sorry, I haven't made this clear. They're truckers. They're truck drivers. They drive trucks. That's what they do. And they do it very well. They don't care about Mr. Bean. I came out. <laughs> and all I could think was to grab my crotch. As the guy looked, he said, who are you? And I said, <laughs> And then I ran back into the room. <laughs> and I hid there for my, I hid. And she came to find me. Where were you? And I said, no, I was on the other side of the, she said, but I went there. I said, no, but that's when I came back here. And then, and then the big climax of the uh, afternoon was she said, you better bring the strippers on. I went into the room, opened the door. I'll never forget this to the day I die. I opened the door and the two ladies were there in front of me. The one was on a table. Her legs were akimbo. I think that's akimbo. the phrase. Akimbo. That's a good phrase. Her legs were akimbo. With apologies and, to Seth Gordon. <laughs> and she was shaving herself um, in preparation for the gig. And good luck to her. But that was the first thing I saw as I was like, ah. And the other one was doing heroin. Uh, but old school, like with a teacup and... Holy and, shit. No, big time. And I just, I kind of went, oh, this little southern suburbs, ex-West of Fordian, missing Dr. Gibbon more than you can ever imagine in that moment. And went, it's your standby, poor ladies. And they went, yeah, thank you. And I went off and I was like, yes, they, they came out. And the lady who was doing the heroin, who had this incredible, like, sinewy body, she was very thin. I might, might have been the drugs. Was it Mr. Broster? <laughs> she had a Broster feel too, actually. And she did the strip show. And as she was doing the strip show, she had now completely naked and she was taking ice cubes out of her ice bucket and doing interesting things with it. There was no water shortage, so no one was complaining. I need you to stop thinking about environment just for a second, Nick. And she was going to think, and a huge trucker stood up and he said, show us your, I can't, I couldn't hear where he, what he yeah. had said. And he said, he just shouted at her and she picked up the ice bucket and she swung it around and she let fly and it went parallel to the ground and hit him straight in the face. And his nose, he went bah, and he stood and blood gushed out. And the whole, everyone went quiet. And then everyone went, yeah. And he went, yeah. And at, at that point, you want to talk about, at that point, I thought, I want to leave the industry. There yes. must be something better I can do with my life. And, and you know, you talk about mentor. I Oh, and then the punchline is I went to her. So that was the afternoon. I went to her at like five o'clock to stay. Please don't pay me whatever it was, 5,000. And she said, you are brilliant. We want to use you next year. And I literally, I said out loud, I said, and blackout, because it felt like the end of a sketch. <laughs> and I remember she gave me the money in cash. Yeah. And she said, thank you so much. And I got in my car and I phoned Mark Banks. And I explained the situation. And he said, darling, you need to spend this money on drugs and a prostitute right now. It's dirty money, but you earned it and it's yours. And I just thought, and those kind of games. What did you spend though? I, no, I didn't. Of course, you didn't me. do either of them. No, I saved it and probably bought something lovely because that's some stationery. <laughs> but that in my career that reminded me that this isn't going to be literally smooth sailing, and I'm glad it happened so early because I went back the following year and I, I found five of the rudest jokes from old rude jokes. Yep. They just wanted jokes. 
rude jokes. I thought that. And new blue. strippers were blue. blue. That's what Selwyn Lewis would have said. Alan, I'm booking you for a cup. Be as blue as you go. As blue go as blue. They love it. They love it. If they the track will be there. <laughs> so I did blue. I knew the strippers were coming on. I brought them on a little earlier, which men love. Uh, and I did it for tears. And and so you, you work it and you go. Yeah. And I charged them double because I thought emotionally I'm going to need a therapist afterwards. It was fine. So those kind of things happen. And I mean, that was the fun one because that's an example of even as it was happening, I kept thinking, but this will be a good story at some point. Um, this is there we fun. are. This is, this is the, that's the podcast. That's fantastic. I, I feel like it's been good. I've, it? I've enjoyed it very, very much. Um, I know that you've had a couple of other guests before me and I know the obvious thing there was that you were leading up to something better and that's fine. But would you say that I've been the best or most interesting guest up to now? Anyway, this so, has been such it's been so much fun. <laughs> John Gibbon would be so disappointed in you right now. Uh, it has been splendid. It really has. It has been splendid. And we really we didn't touch on John Bros. So that's not the that's not the right figure of speech that I wanted to. But well, there you go, folks. That was Alan Committee. Next week on the podcast, I'm doing this because I just listened to a Mark Maron podcast, and this is how he talks all the time. Next week on the podcast. Next week. You're going to listen to someone who drove away from Pretoria a long time ago and has never gone back. Uh, she's written a book about it. It's called Hitler for Wurt, Mandela and Me. You should read it before the next podcast, which you won't. I know you won't. I won't. I've already read it. She is recovering Roman Catholic author, satirist, columnist, journalist, writer, ghostwriter, semi-retired stand-up comedian and saver of South Africa from the jaws of the Guptas. She is the legendary Marianne Tam. Don't miss it. It'll be out next Monday morning at 6am. I don't know if you get up that early. I sometimes do. It's nice. You should get up earlier. It's a good time to talk to your ancestors as well. If you'd like to. Pakla. With your ancestors. With Izinyanya. Fumanibo. Siavuma. Thanks for joining me. See you next time. I mean, listen to you next time. I mean, listen to me next time. I can't hear you guys. Sorry, I can't hear any of you. (laughs) 